Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Ruth chapter 3. You know, used to, back when I first got into ministry, you'd tell people where to turn and you'd hear a lot of pages turn and you'd have an opportunity to do some catch-up while people turned. Now, you have to do catch-up, but all you got to do is look up the screen. And so, uh, I've lost that opportunity to borrow some time. But chapter, chapter 1, I'm going to, I am going to catch you up a little bit, but chapter 1 hit us with the bitter providence of God. How sometimes God allows things in our lives that we wouldn't necessarily ask for. In fact, we wouldn't ask for them because we don't want them. Uh, he, uh, Naomi's husband had led his family to leave their homeland due to this famine. Uh, we're not sure how long they lived there, to be quite honest, but it does say that once her boys were, were married, that uh, the Hebrew allows for them to have been 10 years after that. And so we don't know how long that they lived there, but then her two sons die seemingly close together. Uh, and, you know, the first chapter is, is one of loss. The loss of land, the loss of a husband, the loss of son, a, a daughter-in-law, whom we don't blame, who turns back. And near the end of this part of the story in chapter 1, Naomi identifies with bitterness. In fact, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me, call me bitter. But there's also sweet providence that's, that's cooking at the same time that we get the opportunity to see because it's being written post the famine has now broken in Bethlehem, and Naomi is going home. And Ruth has, she's not going home alone. Ruth is committed to, to her life to care for Naomi. But the chapter ends with Naomi saying, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Chapter 2, we see the mercy of God beginning to break through. Uh, even Naomi begins to see it. We, we finally get to meet uh, some hope in the form of Boaz, this worthy man of wealth, this man of God, and he's also a, a near relative of Naomi's uh, deceased husband, Elimelech. And we begin to see Ruth taking refuge under the wings of God, as Boaz says to her, in a foreign land being led mercifully by God into the field of Boaz to glean. And we begin to see when, they, when Ruth gets home to Naomi and she begins to give her the details of the day or the afternoon or however long a period of time it was, we begin to see Naomi's depression begin to lift and she begins to recover from this however long despondency and she begins a shift that begins to praise God. In chapter 2 verse 20 she says, the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And so it's chapter 2 that we see this pivotal move of hope. Boaz is this God-saturated man in both his business life and in his personal relations. Ruth has become this pagan from a pagan to this God-dependent woman under the protective wings of God. And Naomi has shifted from this bitter widow into this God-exalting woman under the sovereignty of God. And all of the darkness of chapter 1 is gone. 
She has shifted from God being dealing with her very bitterly to God's kindness does not forsake us. You ever, you ever had that kind of polarizing shift in your life? Things could never be worse to one thing or two things happen. All of a sudden, it's, I never thought my life would be this good. You, 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 I hope that you realize, and there's a whole lot, there's two stories going on. We've talked about that. Two stories going on, you know, parallel. You could, you could actually teach the book of Ruth for a long, long time because it is packed full of, of, of things. And so I'm going to try to do the best I can at, at, at straddling the two stories. But I hope that you can see what changes in the story. Really, only one thing happens in this story that changes. And it's hope. Hope is the thing that changes. So far, nothing in the circumstances have changed. Naomi is still a widow. They are still poor. Ruth is still dependent upon and caring for Naomi. There's not really been anything that's shifted except there is some room for hope. Both of them, especially Naomi, her focus has shifted. She has moved from looking back to looking forward. I hope that you can see that. She no longer looks back. She looks forward. And, and where you focus your eyes will determine where you focus your faith. And where you focus your faith will determine the source of your hope. This is very important as we go forward. And so chapter 3 is going to answer the question, what do people do differently when they have hope? When people choose to live in hope, with hope, they will live much more in an intentional righteousness. And we'll spend a little time today talking about what, what does that even mean. But I want us to pay attention to how much more intentionally each character begins to live their lives when they see glimmers of hope. Now there is a, uh, what we have become very familiar with, what we'll call passive righteousness. Passive righteousness simply avoids evil. Passive righteous, righteousness can, can observe and can recognize things that we shouldn't do. And so passively righteous. But intentional righteousness takes the initiative. Intentional righteousness is able to dream of how to make things right. Intentional righteousness goes to the faith and works. Works begins to produce themselves through this idea of hope. Not just avoiding wrong things, but actively seeking out right things to do. Hope helps us to dream. I know a lot of you write copious notes, uh, but I would encourage, I'm sure you should write that down. Hope helps us dream. But, but while you write that down, I really want us to think about that for a while and not just while we're together i want us to continue thinking about that like where are my dreams what are my dreams made of where are my ambitions and you may say well i'm really not much of a dreamer i'm not very you know i'm not very creative or i don't really have this big purpose i can tell you why you cannot have hope and not dream you cannot live in hope and not think about the future 
You can't think about the future without having a plan. You can't have a plan without having a purpose. You can't have a purpose without having the right motivation. And all of that comes from what you look at day in, day out. What you're taking in, what you're focusing on. And I'm going to encourage you that no matter the despondency, no matter the depression, no matter how weak and weary you may be, the circumstances of your life, there is always reason for Christians to have hope. You might just have to lift your eyes just a little higher to see the horizon line instead of your circumstance. And that's all that Ruth, that is all that Naomi does. And she's able to see just a little further and it changes the way she thinks. But if your dreams are shut down, you're connected to the wrong hope. If you can't see a future, you're connected to the wrong hope. Hope begins to set us free to, to pursue. It, it helps us to lift above our current situation, and it plants us into a place where we can see our role in the future. A lot of people will say, I don't know what God's will is for me. And I would say, once you fall in love with Jesus, you'll begin to get some, some glimmers of hope of what it could, how God could use you, how God could begin to bless you, to be a blessing. If you are focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, if you will look unto him, you will be able to see the direction that he's leading you. His word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Hope helps us to think long. It helps us to think ahead. It helps us to think about a legacy that we'll leave. It keeps us out of the mundane. It gives us purpose and drive and vision. It helps us to think up good things to do. Hope helps us pursue a bigger dream. And when our hope is in God, we can pursue that dream with selfless virtue and integrity. You know, hope, it's... And I deal, I deal, and all, all of us do, but I'm just trying to connect some dots. Hopelessness, when people feel hopeless, that's when they lie. And that's when they steal. And that's when they do other things that would force people to keep secrets. It's what forces people to seize illicit pleasures that they know they, that are forbidden. Because they make decisions. Hopelessness makes decisions in the moment. But hope, based on the confidence that God is for us, allows us to see God's gracious sovereignty. And we begin to see it in, in Naomi in chapter 3, 1 through 5. We see it in Ruth in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And we finally see it in Boaz in chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And that's what I want to focus on today. And the, the chapter 3 closes with Naomi full of confidence. Now, last week we left Ruth running home and talking to Naomi about her interactions with Boaz. Now, let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with who, whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. This is so, this is so cute. 
these girls get together and they're chatting about this new man in Ruth's life. Well, here's what we're going to do. How about we do this? I don't think they're doing nails, but they're definitely having one of those conversations. Because Naomi immediately is like, oh, girl, let me tell you about Boaz. He is actually a relative of ours. He is perfect. He is perfect. Here's what we're going to do. You got to, I could just, I mean, maybe not, maybe not. But it really does seem to me that this is like what happens. The, the mother-in-law, the needy mother-in-law is now acting like a mother. And she's playing matchmaker. And Ruth is interested. And the sheer fact that Naomi has a strategy teaches us something. Because people who, who live in a victim mentality don't make plans. They let life happen to them. But they don't make plans. Ruth has shifted. I mean, you know what? Naomi has shifted. She's making plans. As long as Naomi is oppressed... As long as she could say the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, there's no strategy. There's no future. That's true for depression, though, right? But when there's just a little glimmer of an ability to capture some hope, and hope arises, dreams arise. One of the most terrible, speaking from experience, of depression, the effects of depression, is the inability to move purposefully hopefully into the future hope begets gets blurred it becomes very cloudy and Naomi finally wakes up and she's able to see that God could still use her because she begins by saying should I not seek rest for you so you know it wasn't very long ago that she said go back to Moab and find yourself another man and now she's saying, hey, let me, let me, am I not going to help you find another man? I love it. It's so sweet. She begins with this. By the way, let me just stop for a moment. I want you to see her selflessness. Because if she loses Ruth, she loses the person that committed herself to her. This is, a very, this is a very selfless thing for Naomi to do because a lot of times you want to keep people in your misery with you. Not, not Naomi. I'm going to set you free, girl. Is it not right that I would do this? So she begins with this selfless concern about finding Ruth a, a place of care and security. And so she makes a plan. I, remember uh, Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Why would my soul be cast down? Why would I have any reason to disparage life? Here's what I need. I need hope. Because when I feel hope again, I can praise again. That's so encouraging because when you realize that you're in this, and I know there, are, there is chemical depression and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like circumstantial things in your life where you just feel kicked. When you feel kicked, you need to look just a little higher. And you need to be able to see the God of hope. When you can place your eyes on hope, you can take your eyes off yourself. 
So that's one of the reasons why I feel like at church, I feel like a lot of times we miss it. We make church about a place to go. We make it about a story to learn. We make it about, and it is all those things, songs to sing. It is all of those things. But one of the, one of the benefits of gathering together is encouraging each other to have hope. Because I can just about guarantee you there are many, many people in right here, right now, that may be a little dicey with hope. Going through, just going through things that would make you question God's care, concern, timing at best. And so you come into the family of God and you can be encouraged, verbally encouraged with hope. Being reminded of each other's stories where you were at a place where you didn't know what God was going to do. But every time, every time God had a bigger, better plan than your circumstance allowed for. God is always at work. And that's what we need to be coming in and telling each other our stories of God's redemptive nature. In the, in the midst of death and destruction, God brings hope into every one of our lives. And I, and I know right now some of you are questioning if God cares. He does. He does care. And, and though it looks like he has taken a break from you, he has never been working as active as he is right now because God never stops working in our lives. He never stops working in our lives. It may not look like the story that you want told, but it's his story of redemption. Let's get back to this. So, when, when, when people can't see long, this is, this is very, very true in my life. When people can't see long, like churches need to like, our, our number one thing should be hope because on the other side of hope is joy. Like if I have hope, whatever I'm looking at, I can have joy. But so few people look at hope, they look at circumstances. And, and they can find the good in every circumstance that exists. You can like through critical thinking and you can teach yourself how to see good things in the midst of bad things. But I'm talking about hope that comes from God's sovereignty, not hope based on a circumstance. I'm not talking about like positive thinking. I'm talking about like spiritual thinking. When, when a church comes together and they are focused, their vision is on the hope of Jesus Christ, they have joy in their heart. But when you can't have hope, you will not produce joy. And when you're not producing joy, you can't help but look backward. And you get into a very maintenance mindset. And when you begin to get maintenance minded, you begin to hold on to things. Much like people would do back in the depression. When they couldn't think ahead, they started holding on to what they did have. And they did it long after the depression was over. So, I'm going to ask for a little bit of grace this morning as I tell this story because it's weird but here's something that I've learned as a student of scripture if it's weird it's important so we're not going to overlook weird and we're not going to teach things because it's uncomfortable and so we're going to hit it okay so the strategy that Naomi comes up with is is weird, but don't be weirded out yet, okay? Just be gracious, be very patient as we go through this. So 
In verse 2, we find that Boaz is a kinsman. So he is the or a likely candidate for being Ruth's husband. That way, the family name of Elimelech, who is no longer here, and all of the family inheritance will remain within the family. Now, that's according to Scripture. That's in the law of Moses. It's also being followed by, even though Israel is at times doing their own thing, this was also a part of their custom. But Naomi, her aim is very, very clear to win for Ruth a godly husband and to secure a future and to preserve the family line. Now, let me stop for a moment and say this. God sometimes uses really weird things to do some extraordinary things. So, so Boaz, for instance, and we already talked about this a couple of weeks ago and in a little bit more last week, but, but you have Boaz and Ruth are in the lineage of Jesus, right? But Boaz's mom is Rahab, a Moabite. And, and I mean, Obed, who is going to be Ruth and Boaz's son, his mom also is a Moabite, right? These are Gentiles coming out of paganism. So this is who God uses to restore his line. Now, Rahab, the harlot from Moab, ends up coming in with Joshua and Caleb back into the fold of Israel. She falls in love with a man named Salmon. I love Salmon. Salmon patties, salmon cakes are good. But she falls in, that's bad. I just had to break the tension every now and then. It's, weird. it's a weird room today. So Salmon, uh, she marries, he's from the tribe of Judah. Isn't it funny? If I say Salmon, you'll be like, nah, that sounds like a familiar name from the Bible, but I don't really know who he is. But he's the linchpin of the whole family line. He's the only one by birth that's related to Judah. This is the bloodline that Jesus chooses. Rahab the harlot to Salmon. And then they have a son, Boaz. It's amazing how God will use people. The least likely... You think that he knew he was the linchpin? Here's the interesting thing. He never knew he was the linchpin. Never knew it. Not till he stepped over into eternity and found out how God had used him to preserve the very king of kings. He never knew it. All he knew was the guy that married the woman from Moab that used to be a prostitute that came in with God's people. Now, we don't know what they thought of her. But we know what we probably would have. So, she tells Ruth, <laughs> I mean, it's good advice. You need to go take a bath. <laughs> Wash yourself, get as clean as you can. That's what she says, right? Clean yourself up. You need to go, take a, you need to go wash. <laughs> That's just good advice for your first, first, your first date. As clean and attractive as possible, you need to smell, anoint yourself, smell as good as you can, and then you need to go down to the threshing floor because Boaz is working evening turn or night shift tonight. And after he eats, and after he is relaxed, and after he is laid down, when he's laid down for the evening, sneak in, lift up his cloak, and lie down at his feet. Now, everyone, including Ruth, must have thought, I don't know what she thought. You, but, here's, but, here's what, but here's what Naomi does. She says, when, when you do that, Boaz will tell you what to do. And what does Ruth say? I'll do it. So 
there's one thing that's clear and there's one thing that's not. It's clear that this is Naomi's way of trying to get Boaz to marry Ruth. It's not clear why she would choose this way. It never really becomes clear why she would choose this way in their lifetime. It would seem to say, hey, tomorrow when you're picking the barley and he comes by, won't you say something to him? I mean, like maybe a conversation or, or something along those lines. Or, you know, you've already been invited to his dinner table. Why don't you just say, hey, after dinner, could we talk about a few things? I mean, there's lots of ways of, of conducting yourself here. Did Naomi not care what happens? Is she not afraid that Boaz might embarrass Ruth and shun her? They both may disgrace themselves before the Lord. Is Naomi so far from knowing what is right that she's baiting Boaz and using Ruth as the bait? Does she care so little about Ruth that she'd do anything to hurt her, to help herself, to preserve her land or her name? And all of these answers, all these questions, the answer is, of course not. That couldn't be further from what's going on in this story. Though in our world, it looks different. Naomi was so certain of Ruth and Boaz that she knew that they would treat each other with perfect purity. It was the point that she was trying to make. She knew that Boaz would be deeply moved by this and know that this was an offer of her submission and honor, a willingness to marry, that he would be humbled by it too. Now, the writer of Ruth never comes right out and tells us why she, she chooses, chooses this strategy, but there's going to be a clue. But for now, we just need to know that the writer wants us to feel the sense of suspense and if you can sense it the purity is even more profound so she goes down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her it's verse 6 verse 7 and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down now let me take just a moment away from that and say we don't really know how long she was there or what time this starts. But he is startled at midnight. Maybe that's the time that it is. We're not sure. But for, what, for however long she was there, she was patient. But at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, here's, here's something that we would not know in English. Some of you who are not using the English Standard Version will see it pretty quickly, that there is a word here that is a play on words. And the word is wing and cloak. It's the exact same word in Hebrew. And so in the Hebrew, what she is literally saying is, I want your cover to be my cover. So go in and put yourself under the cover of his feet, his cloak to cover you. That's what she is saying here. Literally, she is saying to him, spread your cloak over your servant. 
But the play on words is wings. So you think like a wings of a cape or the, the corners of fabric is the literal definition of the word that is used here. The corners of a, a fabric or of a clothing of some sort. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't know it in English. But it's, it's sort of a, of, a, uh, of a play on words that has to be explained. So in verse 5, she said that she would follow all of Naomi's instructions. But, but Ruth does more here than Naomi says. She says, go in and lay there. He'll tell you what to do. She goes in and lays, and he says, who is that? It's Ruth. It's Ruth, and I need you to cover me with your cloak. She's sharing his covering. And he awakes and he says, who are you? I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your wings over your maidservant, for you are my redeemer. Ruth isn't Naomi's pawn. She's gone willingly, but now she takes holy initiative to make clear to Boaz why, you're there, why she's there. You are the next of kin. Literally, you are my redeemer. The one who can redeem me, us, ours. You can restore us by bringing us into your name. And Boaz, I want you to fill that role for me. I want to be joined to you, us together. I want to become one with you. I am your servant if you will have me. Now, she doesn't say all of that in English, but that's what Boaz hears. Don't get too weirded out by that because you'll miss what comes next. I want you to be very assured that what is not going on here is any inappropriateness. We're talking about two holy, righteous people moving with intention according to the sovereignty of God. Sex outside of marriage is not the objective. It has always been wrong, and it will always be wrong in the sight of God. It has been from the beginning, and it is not less now. In fact, Jesus even said in Matthew fifteen nineteen, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And the first on the list is fornicators. There is not one thing romantic about love that does not honor the God of love. Period. Now, Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. And I want you to see not the passive righteousness, but the intentional righteousness of redemption and of choosing what you focus on. There is hope for every one of us. That's what this story is all about. The only other place in all of the Old Testament, where the phrase, the spreading of the wings or the spreading of the skirt or the cloak is actually occurs is in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. I'm going to read that to you there. It, it's, God is the one speaking, and he's describing Israel 
as this young unmarried girl that he is choosing for a wife. And he says, when I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. God uses the metaphor that Naomi encouraged Ruth to act out. I am covering you with my wings. What a beautiful picture. But I think there's even more to it than that. I think here, Ruth wanted from Boaz, she said, I would like for you to be the one to whom you pledge your faithfulness and with whom you will make a marriage covenant. Ruth said, spread your wings over me. I need the covering of you as my husband. Now, she says that literally, but she's also speaking metaphorically. This word is only found one other time in the book of Ruth. I do believe that it's a play on words as well. This is in Luke, uh, no, Luke, uh, uh, Bowie. Good morning, glad you're all here today. (laughs) Ruth chapter 2 verse 12, where when Boaz says to, to, to Ruth, the Lord recompense you for what you have done, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth comes to Boaz and he says, why are you favoring me? Boaz said, because I can tell you've placed yourself under the wings of God. And the next day, he wakes up startled in his sleep and she said, I know that you recognize that I'm under the wings of God. But I need you to recognize that God is using you to be my covering. You are my access point to that. Will you marry me? I need redeemed. I need to become one with you. I need, I need the inheritance back. Boaz, very discreetly and indirectly, as a lot of older unmarried men may do, said the day before in the field, I paraphrase, Ruth, I love you. And now, at his feet, she says, I love you too. Let's look at verse 10. And he said, at midnight, startled awake, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first because you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He's already been introduced to us as a worthy man. And now he is declaring her worthy as well. Verse 12, and now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight 
And if the morning he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. But lie down until the morning. I want you to consider the morality of these two faithful followers of God. But here is another obstacle. Every time a decision is made, there's another obstacle. There's a redeemer, and I've got to do my due diligence. Listen, he doesn't have to. Boaz could have said, yeah, tomorrow we'll go to the courthouse. He doesn't have to. But there is a closer in the line redeemer than me, and tomorrow it's the right thing to do to ask him. And I will. And if he says yes, then so be it. But if not, We just keep seeing these setbacks, though, right? Can you imagine trying to get back to sleep and say, what, there's another one? I want to I give you a line that I think is important, and that is this. The life of the godly, regardless of how godly, the life of the godly is not a straight line. It is filled with setbacks and obstacles and distractions, and hurdles, and things that have to be worked through, problems that have to be remedied. Sometimes, character that has to be produced. That requires patience. But as important as that is, in all the setbacks in your life, you may call them setbacks, but God is plotting for hope that will lead you to joy, eternal joy. So now we're going to be in chapter 4, rapid fire, okay? I don't know if you laughed because we're close or if you laughed because you don't believe me, but Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there just waiting for the right guy at the right time. Behold, the next of kin with whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down they sat down, and he said to the next of kin, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. She's selling the parcel of land which belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and, and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you won't tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and uh, I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. No! That's not what we want, right? No. Everybody said, I will redeem it. Boaz said, you know, Naomi has a daughter-in-law. And uh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you're also buying Ruth, the Moabitess, the pagan, the widow of the dead. (laughs) In order to, I mean, that's like, he, he is a great salesman. <laughs> In order to restore the name of the dead to his inheritance. Then the next of kin said, Well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I love it. That's so quick. It's like, let me, let me set this story up for you, my, my brother. What a beautiful story. You know, you're going to have to take Ruth as a wife. 
You have to raise up offspring in the name of her husband, Malon. No, I can't do that. I don't know if he's married. I don't know if there's other, maybe he can't, maybe he can't take in another one. Maybe he can't afford that for whatever reason. We're cheering in the background, right? But as soon as this happens, if you're thinking through the real story, there is another setback. And here's the other setback. Ruth, Ruth was married for 10 years to Malon and had no children. She's a barren widow. Young, but barren. And part of the redemption is to produce offspring that honors the deceased. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. But Ruth is not bloodline to Naomi. Boaz is not bloodline to Naomi. But in place of a redeemer who gives the name as if it is the one. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Not Boaz, the son. And a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. She loved her sons, became depressed because of the death of her sons, of course. But this one moment has meant more to her than seven sons. Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Obed means server, one who serves. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I want you to notice how the focus in, in verses 14 through 17 is not about Ruth and Boaz. It's interesting because they become the pivotal people in the story. Everything hinges on their relationship. But the focus shifts from them as soon as the obstacles are through back to Naomi because she is the reason the story exists. What God can do with people. What hope really looks like. How God is at work all the time and trusting Him always moves us from bitterness to better. That's how we meet Naomi. Bitter, empty, done. That's the way the author wanted us to meet her. But the point of the book is that the life of the godly is not a straight line. And right now, your line, your trajectory may not be going in the way you want it or need it to go. But be faithful. Keep your eyes on the hope of Jesus Christ and you will get where he is sending you. Every time. It begins with Naomi's loss. It ends with Naomi's gain. It began with death. It ends with life. Verse 17 is the great destination of Naomi's long and twisted road. The women of the neighborhood who said, you're not Naomi, you look awful. She said, don't call me Naomi. I'm bitter. And they're saying now, Naomi. 
Everything that you said about God was untrue. That's, what, that's all they're saying right now. Everything that you said, every declaration, every confession that you made about God, it was always untrue. And by the way, I would say that to us. Everything that you've said, everything that you've ever done that makes God out to be a liar, it is all untrue. And it can all be redeemed. Ruth was written to us so that we could see the signposts of God's grace, that we wouldn't give up, that we wouldn't turn to bitterness, that we wouldn't turn to emptiness, that we wouldn't levy accusations against God, but that we would see that God is always working, doing things in the hopeful that they could not imagine and may never even experience in their lifetime. But God is building a legacy through his people. Again, going back to Jesus when he's looking over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those of you who stone the prophets, kill all the holy people who try to remind you of my expectations, how I would have, what? Covered you with my wings, but you would not. Through heartache, God gave Naomi Ruth preserved her name through Boaz and opened Ruth's womb. Every obstacle, God is at work. But you won't know God is at work if there are not obstacles to be overcome. You can't be fixed if, you're, if you don't experience brokenness. You can't experience God's faithfulness if you every now and then you don't run into something that you just can't handle on your own. That's where faith grows. That's where legacies are made. If someone asked you to listen to a story about a redeemer from Bethlehem in Judah who fulfilled and exceeded the law with acts of mercy and abundant provision before entering a covenant by with a bride from the nations, who would the story be about? I think most people would say that story is about Jesus. No, that story is also about Boaz who serves as a as a Jesus picture for us, a forecasting of a better Boaz, a better Redeemer who came into our arena of life, who became one of us in order to redeem all of us. And it's not missed on us that the first man woke up and he looked and he saw his bride, and he failed miserably. And now Boaz, a second husband who wakes up and sees his bride and redeems a family. And a Jesus who rose up from the dead and took his bride and redeems all humanity. Praise be the name of Jesus. Better than Boaz. Worthy not just of a family line, but worthy to receive all honor and glory and blessing for all eternity. Let's stand together. Father, this morning we are awed by your ability to weave a story, a true story involving real people and how that story tells another story 
and how that story tells another story. And now here we are, thousands of years later, and our story tells the same story of your ability to come into the godless, give us hope, change our position, and leave us your inheritance. Lord, I thank you so much today for Jesus. We thank you for the beauty of Boaz, the willingness of Boaz. But all of that was given to him. But Boaz didn't position himself in a place to be that. But our Redeemer did choose. Thank you, Lord, that you willingly gave yourself to us. Thank you that you have redeemed everything that we are, not just have done, everything that we are. And Lord, if there are those here today that have not surrendered at your feet and offered themselves to you to be bought and purchased by your name, I pray today would be the day that they would humble themselves, surrender themselves, and trust the Redeemer the only one who can already has and there is salvation in no other name Lord for those of us who take that story for granted who just see it as a piece of Jewish history, Lord, we know you've pulled that story out of the book of Judges and you've preserved it so that we could be prepared when Jesus knocks on the door. When we stumble into his field and he begins to bless us with his things, Lord, we, we learn today Ruth was not satisfied with Boaz's things. She wanted Boaz. And I pray that today we wouldn't just be satisfied with your blessing. We wouldn't be just satisfied with your provision. But today, we want you, Lord, we want your presence with us to become one flesh with you for all eternity. Help us, Lord, to look beyond our circumstance and be able to see the hope, the hope of tomorrow, but the hope of eternity. Help us not to be weighed down by today's hunger and today's darkness and today's emptiness, but let us raise our heads. You are the lifter of our heads, Lord. Help us to see hope that we may live in joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.